0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today, I have the pleasure to be speaking with Andre Gregory about his new book, This Is Not My Memoir. Andre, welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, and a warm hug to you on this very chilly day.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I was just out. It was very cold today in New York. (laughs) Um, Let's start out with the obvious question. Why did you decide to write uh, something you're describing as not a memoir?
1: Well, uh, uh, maybe because I always did say there was one thing I would never do (laughs) as I grew older, uh, and that was write a memoir. I said I will never do that. Uh, But I did get an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, In other words, a distinguished publisher and editor approached me and asked me to do it, so it was very hard to say no.
0: And it, it certainly does feel like not quite a traditional memoir. It's it's much more sort of discursive and, and winding than maybe a, a traditional, you know, autobiography or memoir would be.
1: Yeah. I think that, I think the structure of it is more like a kaleidoscope than say a Dickens novel that begins, you know, my grandparents with this and my parents with that. Uh, and you know, it's like, uh, in that sense, it's like real conversation, which doesn't know where it's going to begin or where it's going to
0: end. You just converse. Mm-hmm. Since you mentioned your parents, I'd love to ask about them. They're quite vivid characters in this book, and they were uh, Russian Jewish immigrants who managed to make it out of uh, Europe uh, just as World War II was uh was about to start could you tell us a bit about what they were like as people and what they were like as parents
1: well they were a catastrophe (laughs) they were awful well i don't know about people their friends seemed to like them uh as, as parents they were sort of like macbeth and lady macbeth but uh you know, they were interesting people. My father, when he was in his 80s, actually just a little younger than I am today, uh, this was in the 1980s, he said to me, you know, if I were young, I'd leave America. Now, this was a guy who had left the Soviet Union. He'd left Nazi Germany. You know, he mm-hmm. knew what he was talking about. He said, if I were young, I'd leave America. And I said, why? Why? And he said, because both parties have become c- so corrupt, it can only lead to fascism. And unfortunately, it seems as if he may have had a point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, there's a, a passage in, a, a very famous passage in My Dinner with Andre, where you voice a similar idea that, you know, we, we perhaps live in a, a sort of a proto-fascist corporate dictatorship where we are both the prisoners and the guards.
1: Well, yeah, you know, it doesn't take much to see what the future is going to be if you look at the present with clarity. And I think in a weird way, that awful, moronic, sadistic son of a bitch that sits in the presidency, I think that... He didn't cause all of this, you know. Um, um, America has been a very cruel, unbridled uh, country that is always going to war and generally against people that are much weaker than we are and, ironically, losing those wars. I think we've been a very corrupt society and I think Trump has been simply the boil on the sore underneath. Mm-hmm. So my parents, my pre- parents uh, prepared me um, for this kind of world. And, you know, when we left Nazi Europe, my brother and I, who were very tiny, we were outfitted for gas masks. Uh, we got one of the last boats out of England to the United States. And, our sister ship was torpedoed, and as a little kid, I watched survivors drowning in the water. You know, so I do know something about the horrors of corrupt systems. Yeah, that's a long answer to my parents.
0: But, <laughs> no, that, that was great. Uh,
1: in that sense, in that sense, they were good people because. Um, they got us out. They saved us.
0: And you described your father as a survivor, first and foremost.
1: Yeah, well he he was, you know, he got out of he got out of the Soviet Union just before Stalin came to power. He got out of Germany just as Hitler was coming to power. He was a survivor because he could look with really clear eyes at what was happening around him. You know, there, there were many others like him. Billy Wilder, uh, who was a very successful German film director, only spoke six words of English, that's all, when he decided to get on a boat and sail to America and go to Hollywood, even though he didn't speak English because he could see how dangerous Hitler was. Hitler had just come to power. So it's not so much a question as prophesizing the future as looking at what's around us with clarity.
0: And of course, that type of clarity from from another person's perspective might look like paranoia, even though it is uh, much more prophetic, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, I've got so many friends who almost didn't want to ever invite me to dinner again uh, (laughs) because I would keep talking about the evil of our society. And that just seemed to them paranoid, delusional, uh, and much too pessimistic.
0: This is a quality in your work, and and it comes through in this memoir that you share with uh, Wallace Shawn, your longtime collaborator, which is this very clear-eyed vision of America as fundamentally a pretty cruel and, and disgusting in some ways uh, country, which is perhaps ironic because both of you grew up with a fair amount of, of, of privilege, at least economically. Um, how did that kind of happen? How did you start to see, wait a minute, from, from the perspective of the oppressed and downtrodden, America doesn't look like such a you know happy, jolly place at all?
1: Well, I was always appreciative of America to the sense that uh, I joined the army in the 50s in a way to thank America for having given us um, sanctuary here in 1940. But uh, as a young man, I remember watching my mother sobbing. The only time I ever saw her cry Uh, when they had just dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And, you know, Hiroshima, I think, was one of the two cruelest acts ever perpetrated by a nation. We dropped more bombs on the little country of Vietnam than had been dropped by all of the powers in the Second World War. Uh, you know, we and um, uh, lynching, I think, was legal until relatively recently, and certainly one of the saddest aspects of the recent taking over of the capital was to realize if those if those anarchists had been black, if they had been members of black lives matter the steps of the capitol would have been covered with blood but Mm -hmm. they weren't because these horrific people were white
0: and of course they even set up a gallows outside of the capitol so the memory of lynching is not too far in the in the past not
1: too far in the past yeah so uh you know i know a friend i have a friend who says well why do you knock america what about?" What Belgium did to uh, the Africans? What about, you know, um, Mm -hmm. but those countries are not my country. Mm -hmm. And it's the pain of seeing what we are that has motivated me both politically and artistically for most of my adult life.
0: Did that awakening happen when you were in the army, or was it more sort of the experience of the of the '60s after you left the army that made you realize, wait a second, everything I've been told about this country is not true?
1: Yeah, it was after when uh, when I heard about the Chris, our Christmas bombing on the hospitals in North Vietnam, on the hospitals that I got so nauseated that I joined. The, the underground the radical underground that's what started it
0: and of course this was also a very radical time not just politically but aesthetically and you were very involved in the the, the experimental theater of the 1960s. could you describe kind of what made that period so special and, and unique and and maybe why it's kind of hard to to capture a sense of what that period meant now looking back
1: well yeah you know that period, not just in the theater, but in the streets of our cities, uh, was a period about movement. Uh, Martin Luther King was moving. Uh, People were in the streets demonstrating and moving. That was the time that musicals like Hair, with all of their incredible movement, were showing that the world was now in motion. And very often, as you know, the theater can be limited by simply being a place of words or a place of feeling. But the human being is a human being with a body, with a mind, with feelings. And so this period in its stunning movement uh, in the movement demonstrated by theater companies like ours, the Manhattan Project, the Living Theater, the Open Theater, were simply reflecting in the theater what was going on in the streets and in the nation.
0: What was the first time that you went to the theater during that time and saw something that made you realize that this was a completely new movement?
1: Uh, I guess it was going to the theater of the Polish theater director, Jerzy Grotowski. It was mm. either that or the Living Theater. I can't remember.
0: But that was all at the same same era. Oh, the, yeah, the same 60s. era. Yeah. A- absolutely. And what what about Grotowski um, kind of jumped out at you at that time? I mean, you obviously you had a, a very long friendship with him, but what... I think you mentioned, uh, you know, get, getting to see one of his shows, like, eight nights in a row or something like that. Oh, so what, yes. Yeah. What, what what about it was so electrifying at that time?
1: Well, he was the Michelangelo or the Leonardo da Vinci of theater. Uh, you know, it's like in film. There are great directors, a few great directors like Ingmar Bergman and Antonioni and then leaving them in the dust is Tarkovsky, the greatest filmmaker, I think, of all time. And I think Brotovsky was the greatest theater director of all time. He showed us a theater that was uh, active, mystical, and presented us with actors who were unlike anything one had ever seen before. You know, any one of his actors could express emotions with 20 or 30 different muscles in the face alone. That's almost unbelievable. Mm -hmm.
0: And was that part of the inspiration for the Manhattan Project, the idea that it wasn't enough to just direct plays? You had to have a company that trained together and kind of learned a discipline as a group?
1: Yeah. I've had... uh, um, Before I saw Grotowski, I had... uh, a kind of image of something I wanted to achieve. And I described it as I wanting an actor who can fly. And Mm. Ellen Stewart came to one of my productions when I had a theater in Philadelphia and she she liked the production. And I said, no, Ellen, no, uh, it may be good work, but it's not what I'm after. What I'm after is a theater in which the sets are made up of living bodies in which an actor can fly, a theater of dreams, an impossible theater. And she said, well, maybe you should go see this guy in Poland, he's sort of doing the same thing. And that's that's how it began.
0: You tell a great story about Gordon Craig, the early 20th century director, um, shouting at his actors who are he's instructed them to to put their arms straight out to their sides and then and then he said no longer longer and he was frustrated that their their arms could only be so long
1: (laughs) yeah yeah well you know you could say that a frustration for some of us is that in sculpture say Michelangelo, when he sculpts his statue of David, you're seeing muscles that are superhuman. You're seeing shapes that you've never seen before. And of course, the theater, you could say, is somewhat limited by the limitations of the human being. So the question is how to create an actor who is superhuman, super natural. And that's what I was after.
0: This might sound like a naive question, but yeah. How do you do that, Andre?
1: Oh, (laughs) you know, it's like the joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, (laughs) practice, (laughs) practice. It it took years of training actors uh, and the time to do it and the same actors with whom to do it. uh, So, in a way, I was sculpting humanity. But it, it took time. Uh, often it took failure. You know, uh, in our materialistic culture, the only thing we seem to care about it is success. Uh, but failure is an extremely important part of anything to do with creativity. Without failure, you can't have success. You know, it's like... Uh, In a relationship, there's no such thing as a perfect relationship. Uh, Every relationship has its fault lines, its problems. But the important thing is to work, 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 practice, practice, practice. Stay in there. Don't give up. Mm.
0: And when you were doing these exercises, you know, month after month, year after year with the Manhattan Project, what kind of exercises were you doing? Were these Grotowski exercises? Were these uh, Stanislavski exercises? Were you, was it everything or what was was your method? Anything anything
1: that we could think of that would work to stretch the actor beyond human limitations.
0: And uh, one of your most famous productions with that group was your version of Alice in Wonderland. Um, what about that text kind of jumped out at you as being something that might be a good, a good thing to make into a show?
1: Uh, well, the first, uh, the first impulse was, uh, if we could ever accomplish it, was how thrilling it could be to make something out of nothing. In other words, the theater and film are constantly at war, um, for, you know, competing for a new audience. But theater can't compete with film. And I was fascinated when I read Alice, uh, what would happen if a white actor, a white rabbit ran by saying, oh my God, ears and whiskers how late it's getting how to create a white rabbit and then uh without makeup without change of costume alice falls down a rabbit hole as she follows the rabbit how do you create falling without a film camera easy to do with a movie camera but i was fascinated Uh, uh, carol says that there's a caterpillar sitting on a mushroom smoking a hookah and getting stoned. How do you create a mushroom with no sense? How do you create a hookah with no props? How do you create a caterpillar out of a regular actor?
0: Um, what was that experience like? You know, obviously you've talked about the kind of exercises you did, but it must have also been a very intensely emotional and kind of int- socially intense experience working with the same actors, for for years on end. How did you manage that aspect of of running a company?
1: Uh, Oh, I'd say probably because I was a failed therapist. So (laughs) I I wasn't too bad at dealing with people. But it isn't easy. You know, uh, as the director, you're responsible for the actors as human beings, as people who need to make a living, as creative human beings. It's a lot of work. You know, it's was just that, like marriage is harder to pull off than a love affair. Mm-hmm. In a love affair, you can just walk out. You can't really walk out that easily on a marriage.
0: Um, was that something that you were always conscious of at the time? That that you, as a director, part of what you were responsible for is the sort of emotional well being of the of your actors. Because, and I ask that because I feel like there's a traditional idea of the theater director as this sort of lone, often male, kind of genius figure who kind of tortures the actors to force them to, to, to emote in a particular way. But it seems like your approach was very different than that.
1: Well, my approach uh, was really not to tell anybody anything. I, uh, from having worked with Strasburg, um uh Having studied Stanislavski, I knew that the theater is the actors, not the directors. There have been actors for thousands of years. They've only been directors since the end of the 19th century. We don't really need them. A company of actors can do without a director. And so I was always assuming that each actor is an amazing creative human being. And my task was to simply bring out the best in each actor. Mm.
0: And you'd studied, had you you studied acting? I mean, I know you, you studied directing with Lee Strasberg, but did you, did you have uh, acting training yourself? Uh, No, nobody, nobody wanted me. Um, (laughs) As,
1: uh, as I, I think I mention it in This Is Not My Memoir. Uh, My dream was to go to the Yale Drama School. And I went up for an interview with some legendary dean before Bruce Dean. And at the end of the interview, he said, you know, these interviews are so difficult because a young person doesn't have any lines of experience in their face. But every once in a while, I do meet an actor, I do interview somebody, who so clearly has absolutely no talent whatsoever <laughs> that I have to, don't do it. Don't do it, kid. He said, you know, the theater is impossible if you're talented, but if you have <laughs> no talent. And, you know, Strasburg said a bit of the same thing. Uh, nobody thought I had any talent. Is that part
0: of the reason you became a director?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. I told myself that if I were not some kind of success by the age of 30, because I had a wife and a child, uh, I would become a lawyer or a rabbi. And since I wanted to do neither of those at 29, desperate, I tried to direct something, and it wasn't too bad. And so I directed something else, and it was even better. And suddenly I was
0: a director. Even before the Manhattan Project, you had the Theater of Living Arts and, and you directed uh, a theater company in Watts in the aftermath of the uprising. So how did you kind of form your aesthetic for those early companies? The descriptions in, in your memoir or, or your not memoir are kind of stunning. They sound like uh, very uh, extravagant in some ways performances. You mentioned one show where every every performance started with lighting the curtain on fire. So, I mean, was that just sort of in the air? Was that just that kind of, you know, you'd seen the living theater, you'd seen Grotowski, anything goes, or where did you come up with that?
1: At that point, I really hadn't seen anybody. Uh, (laughs) I was a young director in love with directing. I loved the possibilities of the stage, and I wanted to push them as far as I possibly could call it exhibitionism, Mm -hmm. (laughs) call it passion, but no, it wasn't influenced by anything. And I must say those stories, um, of my early days as a director, I think are some of the most theatrical and the funniest theater stories you'll ever come
0: across. (laughs) I would certainly agree with that. Yeah. Um, Let's talk about Wallace Shawn. Um, you have one of the longest uh, collaborations between a director and a playwright or a director and an actor, for that matter, of anybody in the American theater. 50, think, 50 years. Much longer than, you know, Williams and Kazan or, or anybody yeah, like that. Yeah. Um, or, you know, uh, the group theater, you know, they were together for, what, 10 years or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I think but, so. Yeah. Um, what was your first impression of, of Wallace Shawn? uh
1: well it was so long ago i hardly remember but um i i didn't assume he was a writer and i certainly didn't assume that he was a great poet of the theater he looked a little eccentric to me but then you know i'm so eccentric who am i <laughs> to call the kettle black uh, he looked like an original a real original
0: yeah, he certainly has a very distinctive, you know, uh, face and manner of speaking. I mean, he's he's instantly recognizable, even just as a voice actor.
1: Yeah, there's uh, there's a story I love. I can't remember whether it's in This Is Not My Memoir or not, but Wally and I were, forgive me if it is, Wally and I were coming back from a rehearsal of an Ibsen play. We were on the street in New York And suddenly this man rushed up to us, uh, tried to hug Wally. And he, he said, oh, my God, my dinner with Andre. I've seen it eight times. What a great movie. You were great. You were amazing. And Wally pointed to me and said, well, I guess you know my friend. And he looked at me and he said, no, I don't think so. And I said, oh, I was the other guy in the movie. And he said, oh. And then went back to praising Wally, and walked up the street. He suddenly came running back. He said, "I am so sorry. You were the waiter.
0: You were great."
1: <laughs> so uh, yes, that's Wally, wonderful. Wally looks more distinctive than I do.
0: Though you're you're not the least distinctive person in the world. You'd certainly, you have your own uh, your own distinct look.
1: Well, thank you,
0: thank you. <laughs> you were even a model briefly, weren't you? I was a Dior model,
1: yep, (laughs) for Avedon.
0: Yeah, I've never been a Dior model, Andre.
1: Well, I haven't met one either except for me. Uh, (laughs) You know, uh, I've always enjoyed doing Mm. something that I've never done before. And certainly being a male model uh, for Avedon, that was an original, and I loved doing it.
0: And you knew Avedon quite well, right? Yeah, we were very close
1: friends. He he did a beautiful book on Alice in Wonderland, which if you go on eBay and you have a couple of thousand dollars, you can get one.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, I'd like to ask you one more question. I, I know we're jumping around a bit, but about Alice in Wonderland, you tell a great story about uh, taking Alice in Wonderland to Iran in the sort of immediate... Uh, uh, a period before the revolution. Could you talk about what that was like?
1: Well, it was sort of shocking, you know, uh, you could sense that the country was on the point of revolution. We, uh, we were given as a performing space, uh, a fake TV studio, which it turned out was really headquarters for Savat, the Iranian secret police. Uh, which we just didn't want to go into for obvious reasons. And we found an onion and garlic packing factory in a working class suburb of Tehran. And we converted it. You know, uh, the fruit and vegetable crates were covered with Persian carpets. There was a wall going around the space, uh, Kids and adults would sit on the wall and watch the performance. And the empress herself, who had made a deal with the military to only go to the opening and closing nights of the festival for security reasons, heard that our production was kind of interesting. And so she showed up unexpectedly. And uh, busloads of Secret Service wearing black glasses and carrying cases with um, machine guns, submachine guns, you know, surrounded the space. And with a machine gun in front of us and a machine gun behind us, we performed for the queen.
0: (laughs) That's fantastic. What What a bizarre moment that must have been.
1: Well, you know, when... When I look at my book, which I only do about 50 times a day, only kidding, only kidding. I don't, but when I do, I'm astounded reading the stories in the book about what an amazing life I've had. Mm-hmm. The life has been theatrical.
0: Yeah, you certainly get that impression uh in in my dinner with Andre uh that that you have lived this incredibly uh strange and exciting and enlightening uh life. And that that comes through in the book as well for sure. Yeah, I think it does. I've been very lucky. Yeah. Um going back to your collaboration with uh Wallace Shawn, your first collaboration was not particularly successful, I don't think. And and you sort of imply that it was part of the reason why the Manhattan Project uh, kind of folded because some of the actors just really did not like that play. Right. What made you want to keep working together?
1: Uh, I loved his work. From mm. the moment I first read his plays I just thought this is a great playwright and if I were a playwright I would want to write plays like this. And his plays as well as being very moving, very disturbing, and filled with extraordinary language, uh, were prophetic. He could see the shape of things to come.
0: One of the things that's surprising about your collaboration with Wallace Shawn is that before you joined up together, your work was known for being very extravagantly physical and theatrical, Whereas Wallacehan's plays are very dialogue heavy, or even monologue heavy, um, and you know will sometimes take place in in a single room or in a sort of featureless uh, non space. So was that a was that a directing challenge when you were working with Wallachan to kind of figure out how to bring your sense of theatricality and play into his plays that are you know beautiful, uh, prophetic, poetic works, but also very focused on language. Uh,
1: yeah, well you know. It's very, very important, I think, in life to keep changing. Uh, You know, I can think of a painter I know who did quite lovely paintings when he was in his 20s and early 30s, but the paintings have never changed. He's never changed. And they say the change is very good for the mind, that Mm -hmm. uh, there's less chance of getting dementia if you keep changing, you know, which is why I've loved to paint and why I always love the challenges of trying to do work unlike anything I'd ever done before. So it was a wonderful challenge.
0: And after the Manhattan Project ended, you didn't direct for something like 12 years. Is that right? Same as Eleanor Duesa. How did you... Uh, how did you know when it was time to come back to directing? Or was there a real possibility that you wouldn't come back? Or did you always think of it as a sort of sabbatical?
1: No, I never thought of it as a sabbatical. Uh, It was sort of not as if I'd given up directing. It was as if directing had given up me. And I kept trying to return to it. Um, And it was only with working on Vanya, which became the film Vanya on Forty Second Street, that um, suddenly I could not not direct again. I had to go back to it.
0: Yeah, let's let's talk more about Vanya because I think that's another that's another one of these turns in your career that you know somebody expecting you to keep following the same path would not expect you to go to Chekhov. <laughs> you know that's pretty much uh, the, the, the furthest thing from Alice in Wonderland as you could get. So what made you want to work on that? you know, great, profound play. But, you know, as a director,
1: I think I have a lot in common with Louis Malle. Louis Mm Malle was never quite recognized the way... uh, Who directed Claire's Knee?
0: Oh, gosh. My my knowledge of film is not great. Sorry. uh,
1: (laughs) Well, the director of Claire's Knee or... Uh, Fellini uh, Mm -hmm. or Antonioni, they had a recognizable style. You could tell them anywhere, even if the sound wasn't on. Uh, And they had themes that they kept returning to all the time. Louis, Mao, would go from Crimes of the Heart to My Dinner with Andre. They didn't seem as if they had anything in common because he was directing from the heart. He would direct what profoundly moved him. And I guess it was the same with me. I just kept following my muse.
0: My Dinner with Andre was your first film and it's a it's an odd film uh not least of all because it's you think so <laughs> i think so a, a great film a film i've i've watched many times and i've learned a lot from but it is uh yeah it is it is mostly a conversation uh you know there's a, there, it's bookended by Wallace Shawn's narration but it's mostly a very long conversation between you a version of you and a version of Wallace Shawn um you know it, it it would work perfectly fine as a play. Why did you decide that you wanted to make it a movie? Uh, we always thought of
1: it as a movie from the moment we got well, we thought of it as a TV show, as a talking heads uh, TV show, but we we were sure that two guys just talking would never be able to work as a play that you needed close-ups and changing of camera angles. It it always seemed as if it had to be a
0: movie. Hmm. Um, and, And you're credited as a screenwriter on that film. What was that writing process like? Well,
1: it was long, fun, and arduous. We worked for a couple of years. Every day we met in a little classroom, and each session would begin with my telling a story, and then the two of us talking about whatever the story brought to mind. And finally, one day, we just felt we'd said everything. Were, the script was 2,000 pages long. <laughs> and we had to stop and take it another stage.
0: Yeah, 2,000 pages is long even for a Wallace Shawn script. I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, one of the Wait, questions that I think a lot of viewers of that film have is, How close are those characters to you and and Wally?
1: Well, let me put it this way. Uh, We are never one person, I don't think, or at least I'm not. Uh, There are people who are very close to me who can't believe that I was actually kicked out of four or five gyms. The Andre who was kicked out of those four or five gyms is not the same as the quiet contemplative person sitting at this table reading War and Peace, but they are all Andre. Uh, And the secret is to find which Andres are relative to the character in the script,
0: one of the things I love so much about the film is that sort of for the first half of it, you're telling these stories almost as if they're jokes. There's a very, you know, you're laughing and it, it kind of puts the Wallace Shawn character in this interesting position where he's laughing as well, but there's a quality that's different in your laughter where his laughter is sort of more cynical. It's more sort of saying, well, of course that didn't really happen or that couldn't have happened like that. Uh, whereas your laughter is sort of much more genuine and it's sort of just, just about the joy of telling these stories. Um, do you feel like that represented a, a kind of real aspect of your friendship?
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. But, you know, the same the same incredible pleasure in telling a story is also in This Is Not My Memoir mm-hmm. that was in My Dinner with Andre. And uh, I think the... The child psychologist, Bruno Bruno Bettelheim, who is no longer with us, he was talking, uh, he was, uh, I think he translated some fairy tales for children. Mm -hmm. Um, He felt that it was tragic for storytelling to be disappearing, Mm -hmm. that stories helped us in a playful way face the demons that we're afraid of naming. And I think stories, uh, you know, sitting around a campfire, telling stories, sitting in the dark on Halloween, telling stories. They're very, very evocative. And the art of storytelling is a very complex one.
0: Yeah. And that's certainly something that uh, Wallace Shawn is a master of in his plays, is, is oh, making yeah. storytelling a live, vibrant, theatrical event. Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: What are some things that you've kind of learned from your 50-year collaboration together?
1: Oh, he's the most interesting person with my wife and my cats in my life. <laughs>
0: Has he changed the way that you see the world?
1: Yes. Yeah. In in what ways? Uh, He's taught me to be much more skeptical in the way I look at the world and to try to look at what's going on uh, around me with much more clarity. You know, now when our democracy is teetering, um, above the abyss, when we're living in confusion, fear, and terror about what's going to happen to our country, when everything that is around us is so confusing, the more that we can look at what's happening around us with some kind of clarity, the better.
0: Mm. Another friend of yours that you mentioned briefly in the book is Howard Zinn, um, and I, and I would have loved to have been <laughs> friends with Howard and I, I admire his work, uh, to a, to a great extent. And he said something that I found very interesting, which is, I think you asked him something like, what can we do to, you know, prevent this rising authoritarianism? And he said, what you should do is keep making your art.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: He said, in
1: times of darkness, art brings light.
0: Yeah, I think that's so fantastic,
1: and that's that's something you know. I quite honestly, I expected about five people to read this. Is not my memoir, mostly people <laughs> in my own family. I've been shocked and staggered and delighted by the amazing reviews, and people are writing letters uh, about how deeply moved they've been by the book and how in a time of darkness, the book has shown them a way towards light. So, um, you know, in a country, in a frightening country like ours now, if you can give people hope, honest hope, not easy Mm -hmm. hope, that's that's a wonderful
0: achievement. I'll say for me personally, one of the things, I've been dearly missing going to the theater since last March. Um, and one of the things that your book really made me feel is that I also deeply miss being in a rehearsal room.
1: <laughs> right.
0: That's <laughs> <laughs> just such a, there's almost nothing more uh, essentially theatrical than th- that process of working through a play and, and seeing great actors engage with a complicated text. I mean, that's just, there's there's no greater thrill, is there?
1: You know, I always loved those movies, even if they were tacky, superficial movies, uh, about putting on a play, mm-hmm. uh, the excitement of making theater, you know, movies, I guess like White Christmas with Bing sure. Crosby, I think, is one of those. So uh, I do think one of the pleasures of this book is that uh, everybody likes to be backstage. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to know a little something about how it was
0: made. Yeah. Yeah, I think about All About Eve as one of those great backstage films.
1: Oh, one of the greatest ever.
0: Yeah. I've, I've
1: probably seen it 20 times.
0: <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I love it so much. Um, the, the line I always come back to is when Addison DeWitt says, you're too short for that gesture.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there are a lot of lines like that in the movie. Yeah, it's, a it's a great, a great one. Movie.
0: Uh, speaking of movies, you also did a a film version of Ibsen's Master Builder, um, which is a great play about sort of coming to terms with your life's work. Um, is that what interested you in in that play?
1: Uh, well, when I first worked on the
0: play, uh, I think what
1: interested me was I felt guilty. Uh, about having been what I considered a somewhat mediocre father. I have two Mm. kids, Nicholas and Marina. Um, I'm happy to say that I became a much better father later on. Uh, But the master builder is a raging artistic narcissist uh, who treats everyone like shit. And I thought, oh, that's me. I should confront that part of myself. But then after years of rehearsing, 14, believe it or not, uh, I came to feel that what the play is really about is the possible fact that our last bold, creative act is how to leave this world Mm. with courage and
0: dignity. And that was
1: one of the main themes of our production.
0: And uh adapted that uh, that play yeah, for that production, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And and the adaptation is is quite interesting where you have these nurse characters almost as a sort of Greek chorus. How did you mm-hmm. get that idea? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just came, came. <laughs> One of the things that I found really inspiring in the book too is your depiction of you know starting a rehearsal process and not having an opening date, not having any sense of oh, we're going to do this at you know the Victory Garden at, you know next March. It, it's just a sense of we're going to meet with some of our favorite actors and we're going to work on this piece and we might show it at some point and we might not. What kind of gave you the, the confidence to be able to work in that way?
1: Oh, I'm not sure if I ever had the confidence. It was simply the way I had to work. You know, one of the limitations of the theater is that it's rooted in the world of commerce. Mm-hmm. So you only have so much money, that'll last you six weeks of rehearsal, maybe, if you're lucky. While this book that I wrote took six or seven years, uh, a painting can take a long time. And it always seemed to me sad that the same, uh, the same heights that other arts demand of artists couldn't be demanded of theater people, too. And of course, some of the great theater people like Peter Brooks, Stanislavski, uh, Julian Beck, uh, Grotowski, Brecht, they rehearsed for very long times.
0: Um, You mentioned the work on this book taking... Uh, many years. And you collaborated on this book with uh, Todd London. Um, what was that collaboration like? It was great. It was great. He, he did things
1: that I would never be able to do. He had a sense of structure uh, and logic, and he's a lovely human being. So mm-hmm. it, it was a nice relationship.
0: And it seems fitting for somebody like you, whose work has been so collaborative that your memoir is a collaboration as well.
1: That's true. Absolutely. Yep.
0: Um, this is sort of a corny question, but I, I want to ask it anyway, which is, do you feel like you have advice that you would pass on to you know, young directors or, or young people who want to be involved in theater?
1: Well, what comes quickly to mind is hang in there. Don't give up. Tenacity is everything. Talent is overrated. Lots of people have talent, uh, but they don't have the ability to persevere, to not give up, to hang in there. So I would say keep at it.
0: Well, Andre Gregory, um, it's been such a pleasure to have you on New Books and Performing Arts. I, I so enjoyed reading uh This Is Not My Memoir, and uh and, and I've enjoyed uh you know seeing your work from afar. Uh, for many years. So thank you so much for for everything that you've done for the theater and and for me.
1: Oh, well, uh, thank you. And I've enjoyed talking with you. You sound as if you're a lovely human being.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Andre. Take care. Be well.